Thanks for being here with us today, for joining us online. It's, uh, it's so important, you know, that we, we gather together every week to remember why we're here and worship the one who brought us here. Today, we're going to wrap up this series on faithful finances. If you'd like to go deeper with this subject, we'd love to get a, a small group together to dig into one of the many books or programs that have helped so many people find financial freedom. Uh, just tell us today or send us a message and we will connect you. Today, I want to think about one uh, simple but powerful question. It affects how we spend and save and give our money, and it affects all of our other choices, whether we're conscious of it or not. And here it is. How does our vision of the future affect our choices now? How does our vision of the future affect our choices now? When it comes to, uh, you know, personal finance things uh, like saving, it's really easy to see how this applies, right? People who aren't future-oriented, either because they just aren't wired that way or because of consistent disappointment, uh, don't tend to save as much as those who are. Or when you have a specific, you know, measurable uh, goal that you're saving for, you know, like a car or a trip, it's, it's much more motivating than just saving for a rainy day. Uh, depending on your personal vision of the future, you know, you might be more of a grasshopper or you might be more of an ant. Now, when it comes to money, though, uh, some people are much more voted, motivated by the past than they are by the future. I think some memories of, like, the Great Depression might have even entered into our DNA. Like, I think they have for mine. Why else would I wrap up the tiniest leftovers in saran wrap? that I have no intention of ever eating, forcing Megan to throw them away when I'm out of the house. But what I'm most interested in exploring today is our kind of collective vision of the future. When we imagine what the world will be like in, in 50 or 100 or 1,000 years, what do we see? You know, what's our vision? And how does that vision affect the choices that we make, both big and small, today? Is our vision captured by Star Trek, where humanity has solved most of its problems and takes off to explore the galaxy? Or is our vision more like Mad Max, where we live as slaves in camps run by warlords and kill over the gasoline that's left. I think we'd like to think our vision is Star Trek, but our choices indicate it's probably Mad Max. We're a little too comfortable with the logic of the cartoon printed in your bulletin uh, with the man in the tattered suit explaining to children around a campfire in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. And he says, yes, the planet got destroyed, but for a beautiful moment in time, we created a lot of value for shareholders. Our choices indicate 
that our vision of the future is pretty bleak. Maybe because we don't think that we can make a difference. Now, we're not the first people to face a, a fork in the road like this, though. The ancient world went through many apocalypses, uh, though they were more, you know, localized. Um, the people of Israel weren't capable of destroying the climate, but they did see their nation conquered more than once, their walls broken down, their people carried away. And when that happened, they asked that easy question with hard answers. Why? So today's scripture is the, the hopeful later part of that answer. The first harder part was the truth that the prophets of God shared over and over again. That what God cared about wasn't the you know, appearance of holiness, but the hard work of goodness. Today's scripture is a promise for the future from the prophet Micah. Now, Micah lived and served as a prophet during a tumultuous time in the history of God's people. The, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel had become so far gone that he never even refers to it. Micah spoke for God during the reign of good kings and evil kings, putting into context why Jerusalem uh, was to fall to the Assyrian Empire. Through Micah, God told the people that what God truly cared about wasn't you know, like temples and the appearance of righteousness and success, but that they did justice and loved mercy and walked humbly with God. Micah was the first to tell the people that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and would come to rule the world and bring peace. And like all the other prophets, Micah testified to the truth that peace meant enough for everyone, enough food, enough dignity, and enough love. This passage that we're gonna look at is a vision of the future that God intends for the earth. So let's look at Micah 4, 1 through 4 together. It starts out like this. It starts out in the days to come. Now, not very much, right? Let me break this down for us. These words in the original Hebrew mean exactly the same thing they do in English. So in the days to come means in the days to come. Not a, a someday that will always be a someday, but actual days like today. We don't put our faith in the sweet by and by, but in the real here and now. So it says, Micah, Micah says, in the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's temple shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. Micah is talking here about Jerusalem, that it would be restored to its glory. 
and no longer be you know, tossed to and fro by conquerors with empires and God complexes. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Now, this is partly a vision of, of, the, of the victory of the Lord, that, that formerly hostile nations will come to see the truth, you know, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's also like, a, like an oracle of reason, winning the day, that nations will not just, you know, choose from among, you know, these pre-selected options, that they will move beyond the, the politics of the possible, beyond the, the tyranny of the next election, and be guided by the truth, no matter what it is, or how uncomfortable it makes us. Can you imagine that? Well, you should. Nations saying, let us go find out the truth. The truth that exists outside of our own structures and set ways of thinking. Let us be taught the ways of the one who's greater than us. Not just the one we believe already agrees with us. All right, so go on. It says, uh, for out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. All right, how does that work right now? <clears throat> Arbitration between strong nations. Uh, uh, we know how it usually goes when there's a conflict between like a strong nation and a weak one. And the strong one wins, unless the other one's Ukraine. But between strong nations, who arbitrates? They have to figure it out for themselves, making compromises. But Micah promises that one day all of the nations will treat each other the way that God would have them do it. He says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. You've heard this verse before, right? We used to sing it in elementary school. Remember down by the riverside? And study one You know, just me. <laughs> what do you think about this verse? Is this just a pie in the sky nonsense? Something to teach children to sing while the grown-ups deal with reality? Or is this actually God's vision for our future? 
And if it is God's vision of the future, how is it meant to come about? Will it only happen because Jesus comes back and overwhelms everyone's free will? Or will it happen because everyone's free will evolves and grows through changed hearts and minds touched by God's spirit? Does it matter? Yeah, I think it does. Because if this is God's vision of the future, how does that affect our choices now? Do we have to be like pacifists now? If so, what happens to the people uh, only we can protect against evil? And closer to home, how does that affect our daily living and our finances? Well, for that, we need to look at the next verse. Verse four says, but they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now, uh, our, our Bible version we use, NRSV, makes this verse plural, partly to make it gender neutral, which I'm glad they do. But the Hebrew is singular on the first clause. A more wooden translation of this is, instead, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. And then it does go plural and says, with no one to make them afraid. So this vision that includes the politics of strong nations ends with the picture that individual people sit under the shade of their own food-producing trees. And, and, and this is what prevents others from making them afraid. The, the future peaceable kingdom includes private property, self-reliance, and self-determination. No one can make them afraid because no one is compelled by economics into military service. No one can make them afraid because no one can take away their ability to feed themselves. No one can make them afraid because nations shall not lift up sword against nation because the people have the ability to govern themselves. See, having a clear view of this future God promises affects how we make choices here and now with enough for everyone and with freedom and self-determination for everyone. Might not be Star Trek, but it's close. You know, speaking of Star Trek, I love Star Trek. I don't like watching it, it's like the idea of it. Uh, but did you see that William Shatner, uh, Captain Kirk, recently went into space for real? He got a ride on Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin space shuttle on October 13th in 21. 
and he was 90 years old at the time, became the oldest living person to travel into space. And I want to read a little bit of what he wrote about it. You might have read it before, but it's worth hearing again. He writes, uh, we got out of our harnesses after getting into space. We got out of our harnesses and began to float around. The other folks went straight into somersaults and enjoying all the effects of weightlessness. I wanted no part in that. I wanted, needed, to get to the window as quickly as possible to see what was out there. I looked down and I could see the hole that our spaceship had punched in the thin blue tinged layer of oxygen around Earth. It was as if there was a wake trailing behind where we had just been and just as soon as I'd notice it, it disappeared. I continued my self-guided tour and turned my head to face the other direction. But when I looked into space, there was no mystery, no majestic awe to behold. All I saw was death. I saw cold, dark, black emptiness. It was unlike any blackness you can see or feel on earth. It was deep, enveloping, all-encompassing. I turned back toward the light of home. I could see the curvature of earth, the beige of the desert, the white of the clouds, and the blue of the sky. It was life. Nurturing, sustaining life. Everything I had thought was wrong. Everything I had expected to see was wrong. I discovered that the beauty isn't out there, it's down here with all of us. Leaving that behind made my connection to our tiny planet even more profound. It was among the strongest feelings of grief I have ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of earth below filled me with overwhelming sadness. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. I learned later that I was not alone in this feeling. It is called the overview effect and is not uncommon among astronauts. Arthur, author Frank White first coined the term in 1987. He said, there are no borders or boundaries on our planet except those we create in our minds or through human behaviors. All the ideas and concepts that divide us when we are on the surface begin to fade from orbit and the moon. The result is a shift in worldview and in identity. It can change the way we look at the planet, but also other things like countries, ethnicities, religions. It can prompt an instant reevaluation of our shared harmony and a shift in focus to all of the wonderful things we have in common instead of what makes us different. It reinforced tenfold my own view on the power of our beautiful, mysterious, collective human entanglement and eventually it returned a feeling of hope to my heart. 
In this insignificance we share, we have one gift that other species perhaps do not. We are aware not only of our insignificance, but the grandeur around us that makes us insignificant. That allows us perhaps a chance to rededicate ourselves to our plant, to each other, to life and love all around us, if we seize that chance. Shatner went to space to catch the same vision that God gave to Micah. It might be one of the only good things to come from the billionaire's little space race. Maybe the same thing would have happened to you. But even though probably none of us will ever see the earth from space, we get the same vision of the future from the Bible. So, so how do we live into it? How do we live into that vision of the future? I think we're often tempted to believe that we can usher in the future God promised with a, a few good choices. That if we all did justice and loved kindness, that the kingdom would be built in and through us during the next century. And while I personally would really, really like to think that, I also know that human nature is sinful through and through. And whatever progress we make as a species will bring new problems with it. But we also can't cynically decide that it will never happen. So we'd best protect our own interests. You know, there are many who would like to think that if justice and kindness were truly God's will for this world, then they would either be a product of the free market or they would be something people do if they feel like it. But there's another verse from Micah that you've heard where I said at the beginning, Micah 6, 8. It says, and what does the Lord require of you? but that you do justice and love kindness, and here's the kicker, walk humbly with God. Walking humbly is the key ingredient. When we think God's plans hinge on the people in this room getting it right, we need to hear that the way we're meant to walk is humbly. And, and, and when we think that nothing which involves human beings will ever work out, we need to hear that word, walk. Walk. Take a step and then another one. See, what we do matters. How we spend our money does too. The causes we support, the, the financial choices we make, they all matter. They matter to God. And they matter to the future that God has laid up for us.